The presenting sponsor of EcoCheck with the IDM is RPG Research. RPG Research is a volunteer-run, nonprofit 501c3 research and human services charitable organization providing a public research repository and studies the effects of all role-playing game formats, accessibility, and inclusiveness considerations for role-playing gamers, and the potential for RPGs to help various populations achieve their educational, recreational, or therapeutic goals. The founder of RPG Research is Hawk Robinson, and he has been wonderfully supportive of my creative efforts over the years, and previously appeared as a guest on EgoCheck on, back in January 2017 on Episode 7. So go back in time and check out our conversation about all the great work he's doing. Donations to RPG Research directly support research and community programs to help people improve lives. And more information for these programs can be found at rpgresearch.com donate. Be on the lookout for RPG Research as they are kicking off an awareness and fundraising tour September through October this year throughout the Western United States. Details for this tour can be found at rpgtour.com. another episode of Ego Check with the Hit DM. I am your host, Michael Mallon. Uh, thanks for listening here this week. And today I am joined by Danny Rupp. Danny has been a supporter of mine for many years now, which I'm very appreciative of. Um, he is a artist, programmer, and designer, uh, co-founder of the site Critical Hits, which was more active in the fourth edition days. Danny had an article recently here um, within the last few months, so continues to put out some content on that site from time to time and has been really just a prominent member of the kind of online role-playing game community with D&D and other games, very active on Twitter. You might know him as Bartonius. Bartonius has been very active and talking about a lot of topics related to role-playing games uh, on Twitter, so... Uh, Danny, welcome to the show. Thanks for your time. Well, thank you very much for having me on. It's good to be here. Uh, and right before we got started, we were trying to pinpoint the exact time frame when we first started communicating online. It had to be sometime 2011 or so, so it's been probably seven, six or seven years. Yeah, long time. <laughs> but I think I think we really started chatting back and forth a lot when we both realized we played Hearthstone a lot, so that was sort of a mutual bonding of grinding through the ranks of Hearthstone. Yes, yes, which I had recently written an article about how to deal with stress and anger as you're yeah. playing Hearthstone, which it's World Mental Health Day, which that's going to be a topic we'll, we'll get into in a bit. But I, I wanted to maybe start with the, the site Critical Hits and maybe even going back further in your history of how did all this get started for you? When, when did you first start playing games? Oh, um, I've always played a lot of games. Like I grew up playing poker with my family and um, just some the normal board games. But I really got into gaming in middle school and high school. And that's actually when I met um, people like Dave Chalker, who was the co-founder of Critical Hits. Dave the Game on Twitter. Yeah. Um, And Dave's been a good friend of mine since middle school, essentially, which is pretty cool. Um, and Dave's the one, he had the idea for a blog back before a lot of people even knew what they were. And, uh, he pulled a bunch of our friends in and really in the early days, it ended up just being me and him. Um, and I found that as a good creative outlet. And if 
you're really in for some torture, you can go back and look at some of my earliest posts there and on the website, and they are, I would describe them as painful, but I was, you know, in my early 20s looking for a creative outlet, so I just sort of wrote whatever I wanted to. Um, but we really sort of found our stride right when 4th edition was announced. We had a chance to go to the D&D experience in Virginia. Um, we had a friend who hooked us up with... Um, sort of a press in with Wizards of the Coast and we ended up meeting a lot of the early 4E designers there and sort of from there it went into multiple Gen Cons and you know we I reviewed a lot of the 4th edition books as they were coming out um, and we did a lot of interviews at every Gen Con I went to so that's really where Critical Hits hit its stride um, but all that comes from Dave and a few of our friends introducing me to D&D back in middle school. So Critical Hits, I remember when I was writing my my blog, the, the DM, I was starting to try to get the attention of folks like yourself because Critical Hits was, it seemed like a, like a kind of a big deal. It seemed like, you know, kind of a legit site that was out there putting out content, doing reviews, doing interviews. What was it like to go from just writing for your own interest to maybe getting a, a little bit of a grasp or a foothold into the whole kind of role-playing game landscape? It was interesting, for sure. Um, I enjoyed it, uh, but it definitely sort of changed the focus. Um, we tried very much to sort of be actual journalists about D&D back then. Um, and I think we ditched that eventually or sort of chilled out about it. But, I mean, I think back then it was really just you either went to EN World or... That that might have been. I'm sure there were some other sites, and people would probably yell at me. But En World was the only one I was aware of, and I didn't go to it very much. Um, but it was like if you wanted to read about the new upcoming D and D content, I felt like back then there wasn't a whole lot going on. Like um, the first Gen Con I went to was 2008, and I think we were the primary source of pictures from the Ennies that year because I took a camera, a digital camera and took pictures and like nobody else was really taking pictures that year. And I think Dave was live tweeting the awards results. And I think we still did that for like two or three years, but then eventually the, you know, any's official account started doing it and it just didn't, we didn't need to do it anymore. But we also did that with the D and D press conferences and, um, I mean, every time they would go through a slideshow of new products coming out in the next year, I'd take a picture of every slide, and then that night at Gen Con, I would go post it on Critical Hits. So we sort of just tried to – essentially, I think our goal was if you can't be at Gen Con, here's what it's like to be at Gen Con and see all this stuff. That's a tall order to try to fill. <laughs> yeah. Because I, I think – Go ahead. I think it would still be a useful thing to do now. Um, I think the last few Gen Cons I haven't had to go, I haven't gotten to go to, but every once in a while I've looked for something like that, and there's still not many people doing that. Like just a here's a bunch of the pictures from this presentation, but it's also changed, and a lot of stuff's done on Twitch now. So the world has grown since then. Yeah, and that's one thing that I've noticed and maybe this is a little bit of an aside but i think back in fourth edition twitter was just becoming more and more of a thing and i don't even think twitch existed back then and there was a lot of connections with just independent folks like yourself who had blogs and websites and the wizards would sometimes reach out to people and 
give you page previews of an upcoming book. Uh, they did that with me uh, yeah. for the Dungeon Master's Guide, even leading up to fifth edition, which was which was really cool. And it seems like a lot of that outreach is now done in house, where there's all these Twitch shows, and it seems like a lot of stuff that was maybe kind of handed off or connected to the community. It's just more in-house. I don't not necessarily saying that's right or wrong. It just seems like a change of, of pace where maybe five years ago, it would have been them connecting with some, some of the prominent members in the community. And now it's all folks that are employed by wizards. I think for the most part, I don't know. What, what are your thoughts about that? I, I think that wizards is definitely more in control of it, which is probably a very good thing. Sure. Um, but from what I've seen, I think they pull in a lot of non-Wizards people for their streams mm-hmm. um, and for different chats they'll have. Um, so I wouldn't say that it's all in-house now, but I think that they are the platform now versus handing it out to like six or seven blogs. And then, you know, you never know what that person's actually going to do with it or yeah, if they're sure. going to post it. I think it's good that they have their own Twitch channel that's very active and they have a huge schedule on it and they can announce things on there. But I also really love that, like, Mike Merles is just, you know, sort of designing psionics now in front of people on Twitch. And, you know, it doesn't have to be in three months, here's a preview of what psionics is going to be. It's here's what I'm working on. And then it comes out as a play test mm-hmm. in Unearthed Arcana or something. So it's people are brought in a lot more to that process. So I remember um, back in, like, the early to middle of 4E, we were at a convention and we had a printout of the assassin that was handed to us for a press game before I think, I don't even think anybody knew that they were working on an assassin class. Okay. And some, one of the people sat down with us and was like, Hey, here's this. And I can't remember if we were allowed to take pictures of it or not, but we were definitely tweeting about it a lot. Like, Hey, there's an assassin. Here's what it's like. Um, it ended up being a class that I really liked in fourth edition, but you know, that was sort of out of the blue kind of thing. And then we were able to sort of put that out there and, you know, people would follow us because we would get exclusive stuff like that just kind of happenstance just from who we knew and where we were at a convention and luck. Um, so now I, I like it a lot better that it's they're more in control of it. And also, I think more people are involved in the process. It does feel it's a different level of transparency, at least from my point of view, which does seem like a a good thing. And it seems like there's just so much content they're putting out uh, with the different streams. They're certainly gathering in a whole new source for their player base, because I just think more and more people are exposed to D&D that wouldn't have otherwise been exposed to it in their day-to-day life. So they can pretty much at any time of the day go online and find some trained, well-skilled people um, running games, playing characters, interacting around the table and get a feel for kind of what D&D can be. And that I think the technology, they've really utilized that in, in some creative and useful ways. Yeah, I very much agree. And I think as much as streaming a game is different from running a game, I think it's still very helpful for a lot of people to see people playing the game. And even if it doesn't translate 100%, it gives you something to go off of versus just reading a book. And I've, I've heard so many stories of people back in the 80s or 90s who got a player's handbook and read it. Um, 
and I forget who it was, but somebody was saying that they first read the player's handbook and then played it as a like choose your own adventure book hmm. by themselves. Oh, I can't remember who I was just reading did that. Um, that would be an interesting experience. <laughs> yeah, but a lot of people, you know, they pick up the book. They would pick up the books back then and had, you know, other than what was written in the books, they didn't have a great guideline. And, you know, if you skipped one or two pages at the beginning of the book, you might not have any idea how it's actually played. And so one of the things that's near and dear to your heart that we've had a lot of discussions about through through social media, and, and you wrote quite a few articles about back, back on Critical Hits, is just the idea of world building. And it was something I wanted to, to pick your brain about because um, I think it definitely plays into just running a, a D&D, running a, a role-playing game session or a campaign, trying to put together larger and larger stories. Um, so you had a series of articles called The Architect DM on Critical Hits where you kind of went into detail about um, world building and why is that topic so interesting to you? Ooh, that's a loaded question. Um, the <laughs> it's what basic, I do. Yeah, the basic part of it is that I went through school for architectural design, and I worked for several years as an architectural designer. Um, but it really came about of I was actually sitting in on another podcast, which was Dave the Game Chalker and Quinn Murphy. Um, and I think they were with Phil and maybe Enrique. They had a DM Guys podcast many, many years ago that was very good. And I sat in on one of those. And I think at some point it just came up of I could always improvise a dungeon or a map. Of And often, actually, when Dave was running 3.5 D&D, he would tell me what the setting was and then just let me draw it. Because it was easier than him even worrying about what, you know, it's like, oh, it's a ruined city. And he didn't have to even worry about what the buildings were. He knew I would just do it. And, you know, part of that's putting off some work onto one of your players. But, I mean, I enjoyed it. Mm -hmm. And, you know, he generally would trust me not to just set up horrible, you know, choke points for all the enemies. But I also didn't know where we were on the map or anything. So I usually just tried to design it like I would as a DM. And we were just discussing how I could what tool sets I had that allowed me to sort of just come up with locations on the fly. And that eventually turned into the architect DM podcast or not podcast, uh, blog posts of me sort of trying to divest this information that I've sort of collected. And a lot of it, it helped me learn also in just writing things out. Um, I think the biggest thing I learned was I would always apply modern day design to something like an inner tavern and so I did a blog post about that, and someone commented and said, hey, most taverns in, like, England are sort of mishmashed together and make no sense because they're just cobbled together and built, added on to over time. Right. And so that was sort of a level of uh, lived-in-ness realism that I was missing because I'd never really experienced that. So it was a growing experience for me also, but... Really, it just came down to I felt like I'd thought a lot about – I don't want to say realism because I'd, I'm very much a proponent of it doesn't have to be realistic. You know, there's dragons, there's magic, there's elves. But if you're leaving a town and traveling to another town, generally there's going to be somewhere for you to stop after one day of travel. Mm-hmm. And in so many – like uh, we were just watching the Hobbit movies a couple days ago and – 
they're going through the Misty Mountains. And it's like, where, how are they supposed to survive this journey through the Misty Mountains? And, you know, it's Tolkien. He thought a lot about his world building. And likely that wasn't a path that very many people traveled. But that's just something I always think about of if anyone's making this journey with any frequency, how are they supposed to survive? Right. Regularly, or is it just people go on that road and die all the time? <laughs> right. That that would seem like an unwise trip to take. Yeah. So it sounds like when you're trying to put together a dungeon or an inn, that there's a story that's in your head that you're just trying to map out of why does this place exist? Why is it there? Who might be visiting this place or who was here before? And it, it sounds like that's how you plot things out. I think it's, I actually think that it's helpful to do those things. It can seem like a lot, but if you just pointed at somebody who's planning a D and D adventure and said, design a dungeon, that could be tough. But if you told them design a dwarven fortress that's been abandoned and taken over by goblins, you you give them something to work off of. And that's sort of where I tried to go with when I would design a dungeon or whatever. I would think about what the basic setting was or what might have happened to this place. And again, I don't think it all has to be super realistic. There can always be things that don't make sense, but I generally tried to use essentially making it realistic as a shortcut to make it easier to design. Yeah, and I think there's, like, I cued my memory because in a recent game, I think I've talked about this before, um, I used the Dungeon Master's Guide. It's just, I, I needed some kind of dungeon or stronghold. I needed kind of a one or two session adventure for my party to kind of get from point A to B in the Yawning Portal book that we're going through right now. Um, I wanted to give them something to work through before I got them into the Sunless Citadel. And so that was my overall goal. And I was like, okay, well, what I need to come up with some type of place in Undermountain that they have to go and find. And I just used the random tables to say, okay, go through and roll some dice. I'm like, okay, here are the rooms in a stronghold. And then I had the rooms. I was like, okay, well, if these are the rooms, what what story can these rooms tell? And I had decided that it was dwarves, and one of the dwarves kind of betrayed the rest of the – and it just kind of went from there. But it, I think you can use – you can approach it a lot of different ways where you can just start with some kind of random options and then trying to make a story or taking a story seed and then translating it to, okay, what would that actually look like? What, what's sort of your approach? My approach is probably more from the other direction, but I think it's extremely helpful to go in both directions and outward and inward, um, sort of as you're comfortable. So I might draw out a dungeon without doing it randomly, but then from there I might take the same process you did. You're just using a different tool for generating it with the random generation of rooms, but you also might get something really special with uh, some random combination. Um, the biggest thing I sort of push people for, especially new DMs, is if you're doing a random generator of names, dungeons, plots, whatever, don't feel like you have to stick to it. Use it to get ideas and then build on those ideas, change those ideas, make it work for you. Even if you've generated all this random stuff and then you sit down at the table and if you intuit that something needs to be changed with it, you can change it. 
that you're in charge. Um, but I probably go back and forth. What I would generally do for a dungeon is think about where it's set and then what might be, what physical features might be in that location and then build from there and then who might have inhabited it. The I probably go a bit too far in the verisimilitude of it where I might think about, well, who's ever going to travel? Like, if there's a hallway, why is anyone? Why does this hallway exist? Why is anyone going down there? Why? Who built it? Things like that. But I also feel like I enjoy that sort of solo. I use world building as like my solo game before I run D and D. I sort of am just world building for myself at that point. And then if you know some of it or most of it is useful in the game or comes through, then that's super cool. I'd probably say just as often I forget to even mention certain things and then I just throw it out to my players after the session or whatever and they're like, oh, that's cool and creative or that's silly and stupid. But Yeah, and I think it was, I think it reminds me when I was talking to Mike Shea, I think it was like a year ago, we were talking about this idea of playing D&D away from the table, away from the group. And maybe yeah. that means thinking about, well, what is your villain up to and what, what's your villain doing right now while the players are in some other location. And I, I think the example you provided of when you're building a dungeon or kind of doing some world, world building, that that is, that's playing D and D and that's kind of a way that you get enjoyment from it, which is cool. Yeah, definitely. And I, Mike and I throw jabs at each other all the time because he's sort of, I, the way I sort of think of what he's doing is he's actually trying to sort of push the art form of planning games forward. And I think he's doing a very good job of that, but he often will try to boil things down into his uh, simple DM tip. And many times I've tweeted a bunch of angry tweets at him because I feel like he's oversimplified things. The worst case was he tweeted, and I think it wasn't directed at me initially, but then we had a long thread about it that he said, no one cares about your game world's history. And that was that was within the last month, I think. It was a few weeks. Oh, uh, well, he's repeated it. He's repeated it many times. The original one was over a year ago. Yeah. Um, but I got really angry with him because, uh, at least from my experience and talking to my players, who I'm all I'm very close to all of my players, and we've been playing together for a decade now together. Um, they I've gotten them invested in my homebrew world history. They've been there for a lot of it and we, we keep going and I build on it and I've moved, you know, 20, 30 years into the future. And if I call back to that history, it, you know, is can really impact them. And I've had some really amazing moments at the table that have paid off for me. I've had many that haven't paid off or that get glossed over, but my my personal take on that is that you know you I think what I said was you have to make your players care about your game world history and there's ways of doing that and a lot of tactics that go around that but I don't disagree with Mike I think especially if you're starting out world building then you shouldn't sit there for several months and write up a whole huge drawn out history because you know, you could throw the characters into that and they'll go off and do something completely unrelated. So I very much agree with what he's saying, but it just puts me on tilt sometimes. Yeah, and it reminds me, I don't think I'd be able to pull it up fast enough, but there is a meme of Chris Perkins where it's like him looking disapproving about like railroading the players into the main objective of your story as a DM. 
then there's a picture of him smiling and it's like emotionally backmailing the players based on their backstory to point them in the direction of the main objective you have in mind. Yeah. I assume you saw that because it, yeah. it seems to be related to what, to what you're talking about, where part of world building is not only doing it for yourself as a kind of solo endeavor, uh, but doing it to meet the needs of whatever group you're with. Yeah. So how do you, how do you do that? You know, there's probably other DMs listening. Like, what what are some tips to actually accomplish that goal? So meeting my needs and my players' needs is what you're saying. Right. Oh, that's tough. Um, the biggest thing I've done in the last few years is just hounding my players about what they want. And I have to essentially, you know, hold them down and draw it out of them. Um, in the most painful process ever. Most of my players just want to sit down and play, and they have gotten... Maybe they've got Stockholm Syndrome or something with me running for them for so long, but they generally seem like they're happy just sitting down and doing what I want to do. But every once in a while, I get good feedback out of them, so I've tried to... The biggest thing I'd say is I've tried to let go of my setting a little bit. Uh, back when I had a 4E game that went on for four years, I, you know, was clutching to a lot of that and what I was planning. And, you know, this this is happening in the world, and no matter what the players do, you know, they can have some impact, but this is going to happen. And I tried not to railroad them horribly into things, but I'd say in the last couple of years, I've tried to let go, let them have some say, push more of the narrative control into their hands. But there's a lot of factors on that. It matters, you know, what characters they're playing, how often you meet. The biggest issue for us in the last few years is a lot of us have had kids. So, you know, meeting from noon to 8 p.m. on a Saturday like we used to is just not feasible for us anymore. So we're often now we get together at 7 or 8 p.m. on a Saturday and we're all already exhausted. You don't have as much time to get through a, a denser or a dense plot. Yeah, so for several of my players, you know, they'll show up, and if we've had enough caffeine, we can really get into some heavy role-playing and do some combat and stuff like that. But other times, it's let's just do a nice, simple combat or some, you know, exposition. And we've definitely had a few sessions that fizzle or fray lately, which I think is just due to a lot of our, you know, state of being tired and being adults now. It's... A tough thing to manage sometimes. You know, there's been several guests I've had on the show, including uh, Dr. Megan Cannell, and I think some other folks have talked about having a, a session zero, where you meet as if you were going to be playing the game, but instead of launching right into an adventure, you have some of these conversations with the players where, you know, kind of who's your character, how do they know each other, what, what do you want, what type of gameplay do you want, uh, what are the motivations of your characters... And keeping track of that, and, you know, it doesn't have to be a huge three-page background for each character, but if you have a player that wants to do that, by all means, like, that's great. Um, but I, I think having a sense of sort of what the player, each player is invested in about the character they're playing. Um, so, for example, my current campaign, I have one character who just really, really despises undead creatures, and has kind of this, not that extensive, but this little backstory about this is what happened to this character, and here's why it's important to kind of cleanse the world of the undead. So when I was 
building that dwarven stronghold thing I was talking about earlier, there were one of the dwarves that decided, well, he sort of splintered from the group and became a necromancer and then came back with undead and invaded it. And that's how it all like went to heck. So they were undead in the stronghold. And that just kind of made that character, made that player a little bit more invested in, in clearing the dungeon as an example. But in the current Sunless Citadel adventure, uh, one of the other players is a dwarf. And he just said, you know, the reason I'm adventuring is because my cousin is missing and, you know, I'm looking for him. So I just tweak some things in the Sunless Citadel adventure to include, like, likely find his his uh, dwarf cousin sooner or later in that adventure. So kind of taking some of the seeds that players give you and using them to build the world, or if you have a world in mind, being willing to be flexible and, and yeah. change some things rather than, well, my world doesn't have dwarves. And sorry, like, you know, you might want to look for your cousin, but your cousin's not here because it's not written in this adventure. So... Maybe later we'll get to it. it. Be willing to just roll with whatever the the players give you. And I think all the adventures, even all the rules and stuff, it's meant to be tweaked. It's meant to be, you know, changed to whatever you know you and the group want. So so being open to those ideas from the group, and I, I think the the idea, and I wonder what you feel about this, is allowing the players to build the world as well. Yeah, I think it's great. And I love the suggestion of a session zero. I don't think I've had the chance to do one yet, but I'm planning on starting a new campaign in the next few months. And I'm, I have a lot of ideas for what it's going to be, but I'm definitely going to sit down with my players for a session zero and try to keep as open of a mind as I can. Um, the hitch there is that it's based on a sort of narrow concept that a lot of my players have pushed for because it's, very silly and it's going to be interesting but i think it's great and essentially it spreads out some of the load of running a game from the dm to the players and i think that's really good as you know the sort of i guess expectation would have been many many years ago of the dm is doing all of the work and they show up to the session they've got a huge binder full of all of this history and whether it's the forgotten realms that they've studied or it's their own homebrew world they've got all these npcs and plot lines planned out if you can offload even a small percentage of that and you're not offloading it but let the players assist with that like your example the player who was hunting undead and trying to get rid of them that just makes your job easier absolutely and yeah it also pretty much guarantees you that player is going to enjoy this portion. It's like if I throw some undead in there, then that player is going to be engaged. That character is going to have a thing to do and you can use that. And it's great. And I think DMs have been doing that for a long time, but I feel like we're all starting to talk about it more and sort of integrate it throughout the process. It, I think it used to be probably something that was done accidentally. And now we're sort of, a lot of people are trying to talk about doing it intentionally and, making the players aware of it. It might have been something that, you know, a player was like, oh, I'm going to hunt the undead, and then it just sort of happened that there were undead, or maybe the DM was planning to put the undead in there anyway, but now it's very much of, if you pick this thing as your character, then that can be the focus of it. And it kind of just reminds me of, like, the ranger's favored terrain. Um, I was running a desert campaign, and my one player was playing a ranger and his favorite terrain was desert. And I just always thought it would be hilarious if I did 
even one adventure that wasn't in the desert, that character almost became useless. Mm. And it was just him by choosing that class and that one feature sort of really, it didn't restrict me to it, but I knew that that player would not have as much fun. Or you could do sort of a fish out of water type scenario, but that just, you know, hey, you lose half your class features doesn't seem super fun. So in that case, I've been a fan of the revised Ranger from Unearthed Arcana because it sort of fixed that, you know, you pick one terrain and here's a bunch of skills you get only on that terrain. Sure. But I think that that's similar to what you're talking about of, you know, the players telling you what they want and then just sort of trying to weave that in naturally. And I guess if the players don't notice, that's fine. But I've more and more lately tried to encourage my players to get involved and be aware of what I'm doing. And now that I have, I actually finally have one other player who started DMing and he and I can sort of throw things back and forth like that now. Yeah. And so when when I play in his game, I can be a more active player and actually sort of do things to try to help him as a DM. And we'll see if he does the same for me. I haven't had a chance to do that yet. And it ties into one of the questions we got. So I had thrown out on Twitter that we were going to be recording here tonight and said if anyone has any questions based you know about world building, let us know. Uh, so we did get a question from at Fantasy Ecology, and I enjoy part of their their bio it says level two dm remorseless barbarian which i uh found that to be just terrifying terrifying yeah i don't know what that's about so um so they ask how do you recommend dms focus their energy into world building that the players will actually be able to experience so this really relates to some of what we've been talking about but i think that question has a different focus so i'll let you tackle that one Sure. Um, I saw the question, so I've been thinking about it a lot for the last few hours. Great. I It goes back to what I was saying of I sort of world build as a solo game, so I don't know if I've just adapted to the idea that my players may not experience all of it, so I'm going, I might as well enjoy it. Um, but I would say if your goal as a DM is to maximize how much the players will experience, then you're sort of restricting how much you can plan. Uh, I would be shocked to find any DM who knew exactly what their players were going to do in every single session. Um, From my experience, I've sort of built a homebrew world, and I haven't fleshed out every detail, but, uh, you know, sometimes it's, oh, there's swamps down this way. Uh, In my most recent game it was there's a desert and then there's the deep desert to the south and i think i've had for 10 or 15 years the idea of this isolated city out in the middle of the desert and i built on that but while i was running the game every adventure my players would keep saying we should just walk into the desert to piss danny off and i'd just laugh and be like jokes on you i already know what's out there and i didn't know every detail but if in one adventure they randomly decided to be mean to me, which my players like to do, and just walk into the desert, I probably would have had them die if they hadn't prepared properly, but that's on them. Um, but I would have known what was out there. It wouldn't be a complete blank slate. So I would say don't feel like you have to have everything nailed down, but having a general idea of what is within their reach um, I think it can be tricky if you've got games like I've had where the 
characters have access to airships or teleportation. That becomes tricky because they really could just try to go anywhere. But even then, you can come up with one or two random ideas just in case. So I would say focus your energy on initially what is going to be seemingly most likely valuable. But if you're developing things that are outside of that scope, don't feel like it's wasted. You can almost always regain and recycle that effort later and sometimes in completely surprising ways. Uh, you might, if you design a dungeon and the players never even go there, the next time they go to a dungeon, you can just throw that at them. And they don't know that you designed it two months ago or a year ago. As long as you don't throw it away, get frustrated. If you just save it, add it up, eventually you'll have enough stuff. I mean, my homebrew world literally just came from me running a series of different campaigns uh, that I sort of loosely thought were connected. And then eventually I just sort of pushed all the maps together and was like, hey, I've got this big world. Sure. Well, and I think it also depends on the type of group that you're playing with. It sounds like yeah. your group of players and you have been playing together for, it sounds like years, but how long How long have you been playing with these folks? Really, it started with them back in like 2006. So yeah, it's been, it hasn't been yeah. constant, but it's been 12 years with a lot of these people across me and Dave running different D&D games. So I've gotten a feel for these people. Yeah, and, and it sounds like they've gotten a feel for you, and I think you said they try to, to challenge you at times or maybe yeah. in kind of a playful way, just testing the boundaries of kind of knowing your preferences and maybe trying to, to push against them sometimes, and you're kind of aware that that's happening. So there's you know a big thing, I think, with, with DMing and just playing D&D and other role-playing games is this element of trust. And that if you trust the other people at the table, that, you know, no one's really trying to be competitive. No one's trying to, you know, purposely make a bad experience for people. Then I think, you know, everyone has a good understanding. <clears throat> with other with other groups, like, for example, if I was to play with a group of relatively, not new players, but people I was not that familiar with, and I found out that they were heavily invested in the lore of the Forgotten Realms and they wanted everything to be quote-unquote accurate to, like, here's where the cities are, and here's all the different prominent characters in the history, like, I would be pretty lost with that. Yeah. I, I would have a hard time because I, I don't have that encyclopedic knowledge that some of the other folks that are very prominent on social media, folks that I've talked to, talked to in the past, um, they just know this lore forward and back. Uh, they're familiar with it. They feel comfortable improving like oh of course well that's this character in the city and it takes five days to get there and where i'd be sort of beside myself so i feel more comfortable and i think you even have an article that's titled wigging it back on <laughs> uh, yep. critical hits so and i'm with a group of players who they have varying degrees of knowledge about forgotten realms they know we're in that setting but no one is really a stickler for well, hey, wait a minute, this city isn't here, or this there's supposed to be a river here, and it takes longer than this to cross, or whatever. Like, no one has been that much of a stickler about the, the lore and the history, but it, it would be good, again, returning to that session zero, of knowing what are the group's expectations, and what can I get away with, and what is maybe going to negatively affect a player or the player's experience, if that makes sense. Yeah, very much so, and that's 
something that I was worried about years and years ago is I've I've never known very much about those uh, sort of established settings, Forgotten Realms, Dragonlance. I don't know very much about them at all, and I would always say I you know couldn't run Forgotten Realms because I don't know it, and I would be afraid of sitting down with you know if R. A. Salvatore sits at my table, it's like crap. How am I going to DM for that? But I think uh, what we've been talking about is if you can, if you have one or three or four players at your table who really know Forgotten Realms, just use them. Yeah. You know, don't don't tell them where the city is. Ask them where the city is, and you know, they should. If they want it to be accurate, they'll help guide you into it being accurate. But also, you could sit down and say, "Hey, I'm running Forgotten Realms. I don't know it that well, so maybe it's a little bit different." You know, it doesn't have to be that everyone's version of the Forgotten Realms is exactly the same. Some people might really want that, but that's, you know, not everyone's fit for the same for every D&D table. So if you're not comfortable running it by the setting and they're not comfortable playing it not by the setting, then, you know, either you play something else or one of you's got to give at that point. Well, and if Ari Salvatore is at your table, I think finding out, well, what character is he playing and sort of what's the backstory and what what can I pull from that to bring into whatever version of my world is going on that's going to be invest investing for that yeah. for that person. And returning to the question of, you know, again, how do you recommend DMs focus their energy into world building that the players will actually be able to experience? For me, you were talking about some conversations with, with Mike Shea on, on online where you guys are going back and forth. And I think one of the topics is about, you know, theater of mind versus using Dwarven Forge for um, different combat situations. In the past, in fourth edition, I think more so because I had a group that had just a just racks and racks of Dwarven Forge pieces. Like I would build out a set piece, you know, before the session began. And like once you build one of those things out, you feel very obligated to use it. Yeah. Um, so in some ways you're kind of railroading the group or just kind of leading them to a certain location. But what I got better at over the, over the years of playing fourth edition is I would build something out, but it could be home to multiple encounters, like depending yeah. on what the party did. So you kind of, you know, you might, for example, if you're a big person with terrain, you might say, okay, I have this terrain in mind for some type of combat. I'm not quite sure of what they'll be facing, but at least like this is the terrain part. And I know that players are going to experience this. I just don't know exactly what foe is going to be in there, depending on the decisions the players make. So that's an example. I also think just for me, it's been helpful to come up with NPCs that are prominent in a world where I know like at the very least the players can meet this person. And depending on what they do, this NPC can give them different different quests or point them in different directions. But if I have this one person fleshed out in some descriptions and mannerisms, then that that's something I know the players will be exposed to. And I don't necessarily need to know that this NPC, I don't need to know their lineage or what they were doing 20 years ago, but I can say, this is a character, here's where they are, here's what they look like and smell like and sound like. And the players can fill in the gaps or they maybe come up with stuff on their own. That sounds great. It's like, yes, of course. Yeah. You recognize them from some other thing because you rolled well on insight or whatever, you know, you can be willing to be flexible, but I think build just a few things that are important 
that you know are going to be in the current session or two. I, I think a lot of times with world building, and again, if this is enjoyable to you, then by all means, go at it. But you can kind of plan out this epic story. And meanwhile, your characters are level one. And it's like, you think, like, well, I know what's going to happen in a year and a half from now. How do I get my players there? I think a more uh, economical way to approach it is, what are some things, what are some scenes, some characters, some combat situations or whatever that I can flesh out that are going to happen in the next session and go from there rather than building a huge overarching story. Yeah. And actually you sort of tipped me off to something there of, I would highly recommend not trying to plan ahead, but you know, I wouldn't say you could waste a lot of time on planning out a lot of history, but it, I find it very helpful to have a rough idea of the history of somewhere. So rather than it just being, you know, XYZ town that's somewhere, you know, maybe it's a border town that is between two, you know, warring nations or something. And just having that general idea and then they go into the town and you just have that in your mind. And a lot of the NPCs are veterans of a war, but they're in this sort of middle area. So there's people from both sides of the battle that, it, you know, happened years and years ago. And they don't care anymore, but it's still that has lasting impact. So I think you could spend some of your DMing energy on thinking big picture history and how that impacts things. And you can also pull the players into that um, if they've got backstories. So I would focus your energy on the players and their characters first. If you've, especially like if you have a player who's picked in D and D like the soldier background, boom, you can throw them into that, tie them into that setting very easily. If that player wants to, generally when you throw something like that at someone, they'll take to it. And I've had several times where either me as a player or me as a DM, um, even one thing like that, like I have the soldier background and this place used to be at war and that I can just latch onto that. Or I've had players latch onto things like that and just run with it. And that really drives them and they get into the character and it drives their character forward. And, you know, it's become over the course of like a four year campaign that can, that one early moment can really build into something special. One of the other things I think with world building is just that, you know, the players will be able to experience is and, and Dwarven Forge and other terrain and minis and things like that are an example of this are, are props. So yeah. if you know, they the players are going to interact with a certain character, the, the D and D adventure books you know, do an excellent job of this where they illustrate the prominent characters you meet. So you can hold the book up or there's files that you can show on a tablet or something like that. Be like, okay, here's the character you meet and you describe them and then the players have something to latch onto. <clears throat> but you can also, like I in the past have written notes or have like different objects. It's like, well, you find this and you just kind of put it out on the table and, you know, you kind of have an idea of what, what this is or what it means, but half the fun is hearing what the players speculate is yeah. going on. And again, that's sort of this collaborative world building. If you're willing to be flexible and take some of their ideas and run with it, which is a lot of fun. I know for curse of Strahd, when I was running that about a year and a half or two years ago, uh, there was the intro adventure of death house and there's 
the whole story with Rose and Thorn, and there are these kids that this is kind of pretty dark story fitting for the, the Ravenloft setting. And in the book, it had some art or it kind of talked about, well, here are some of the characters or monsters or other issues that are in this adventure. And what I did is I, like I looked in the monster manual for a certain monster that they would encounter. And I drew that as if I was one of the children and left that for them to find as a clue, oh, wow. as a clue of, well, here's something I need to look for. And in the, the picture, I think it was a Banshee or something like that. The Banshee had either was holding a necklace or was wearing a necklace. And the players just went for five to 10 minutes on, well, we got to find this necklace now. It must be important. She's holding a lantern. So that must be important. And I didn't plan for that to be, but I was just sitting there listening and be like, okay, I need to put a necklace somewhere down in the dungeon that they find. And it needs to have some kind of power. And it was just a lot of fun to, you know, do some things to bring the world to life that I knew the players would experience, but didn't necessarily have the, the finish line in mind. I was like, the, yeah. the finish line will kind of present itself and the players will help me get there. Yeah, I think that works. I've done a lot of that, but I also try to not have the world constantly morphing to mm -hmm. my players' ideas. One of the big things I've pushed back on in a lot of conversations is the concept of running with anything your players say, because I, like I've said, I love my players. They're my best friends. But they really try to suggest things just to drive me up a wall. Sometimes the the biggest one was in heroic. They know your like, they know your trigger points. No, they do. And so like in it was like fourth level fourth edition. My artificer player wanted to build a cannon to shoot people into the astral sea, and it's like, you know, am I going to latch onto that plot? And you know, you could latch onto it and make it a really long term project. But the player didn't really care that much about it. He's really just being funny. And eventually, I think I did pull that back in in the long run by the time we got to the epic tier. But it wasn't like an overall thrust for his character. So I think really putting it all into sort of a big mixing bowl and then picking what you like... Or even, it's definitely important to listen to what they're saying, but you can always subvert it. Or, you know, even have them go on a red herring chase, and it's, you know, as long as they learn something and get something out of that as not a complete waste of time, then I think it's effective. But I still, generally, sometimes I push back against making everything that they suggest in a case like that uh, important. Yeah, you definitely need to pick and choose your spots. And yeah. If, again, it, it depends on the group. And if you have everyone at the table, let's say you have a group of five players and each of the five players has their own individual quest that they're focused on, that's not going to be that great of an experience if everyone just cares about their thing. Yeah. Um, so finding some common ground. And I think, again, a session zero can be helpful with that to figure out how are these five characters linked together or maybe two of them are linked together and then the other three just sort of met each other or whatever the case may be, just even on the front end, trying to make sure that there's some shared goals along the way. But yeah, you have to pick and choose your spots. And I wrote an article years ago on my site about when is an altar just an altar? 
Because yeah. anytime I would introduce one in my game, the players would be like, "Oh, well, this means something. We have to we have to pray to it, or we have to make sure we don't defile it." And you know, there's times where it's useful to go with their ideas because they could be enjoyable. And there's sometimes where it's like, "Nope, this is just an altar, or this is just a basin of water." And you kind of, I think, as you're with the group and just your own preferences, sort of figure out when's the best time to to run with something and when when is it a good time to maybe shut it down or maybe save some of those ideas for the next time where it, it fits in a little bit better. Yeah, um, and I think a lot of that probably stems from the sort of, I'll call it an older idea of the sort of antagonistic DM, and it's an issue of trust between the DM and the players. And I think it's really, I very much think now of the DM as just another player that has a different role of, you know, if you present an altar and the players start investigating it, if you as the DM let them waste a lot of time investigating every nook and cranny of it, and sort of make them feel like you're holding out on them and that if they don't, you know, figure out the one exact thing to do with it, that they'll miss something important, then, you know, that can lead to issues. And it's, you know, if they're just wasting all of this time on an altar that's not important, that's not satisfying for them. It's, you know, maybe it's fun for you of, haha, I wasted their time or tricked them or, you know, they didn't figure it out. But I generally, as a DM, try to give clues and or, I mean, there's times I've flat out, you know, I've put something in there. Somebody offers a suggestion. It's like, oh, there's a, you know, chandelier or there's a big stained glass window or, you know, an altar, something like that. Or I can't think of a good example, but something that could be a hidden magical item or secret door. And I've picked up on one or two or more of my players being like, oh, we're going to latch onto this. And I've told them there's nothing there. Don't worry about it. I'm not lying to you. Like, I'm not trying to trick you. Just don't waste your time there. Let's move on to something else. Well, and, you know, I, yeah. I could go with it and add something in there, but sometimes it's just, you know, they something piques their curiosity and they think, oh, this is important. Yeah, it comes up, I think, when my groups, and I think just most, well, at least groups I play with, are cautious around any door. <laughs> yeah. It's like, you know, we check for traps. It's just kind of this common thing. Like, we check for traps and... Uh, you know, sometimes I'll say, oh, well, you know, give me a roll, or even if I, I know there's nothing there, but just to kind of continue along with it. But other times I'll say things like, you know, you're really confident that this door has no mechanisms that are that are going to fire or anything like that. So I'll, I'll sometimes talk about this idea of confidence as the person is making a check about <clears throat> something as a way to indicate without saying without telling them. Yes, there's there's nothing here. Move on. But I'll say something along the lines of, you know, you're really confident your expertise has made it certain that there's nothing nothing else that's that you can't see. Um, so there's different yeah. ways different ways to phrase it. But if you ha if you're in a big dungeon and there's 20 doors and every time they're at a door that comes up, then you know if they're maybe make a point as a DM that you describe the doors as looking the same, and if there is a door that seems to be trapped or you know give the players a hint of like you know this door seems reinforced or it looks different or there's a mark on it or like give if they keep doing that then try to find a way creatively around it other than like you said being antagonistic against the players of yeah. you know you're not working against them certainly or yeah or you can you can use some tricks to sort of heighten their senses around there if you're you know if you're going through a dungeon with a bunch of doors 
don't describe a lot of it, but then if there is a door that's trapped, you can add a bit more description in before that, or add something odd out of place around that door that they might pick up on and then be more cautious around, or they might barrel through it. And, you know, if they if something happens, like they feel a gust of wind and then they just barrel through the door and a trap goes off, they might think, oh, I should have paid attention to that, you know, clue I had. And that's a little bit better than just either wasting a lot of time checking all these doors that aren't trapped, and then finally I caught one that's trapped, or barreling through them all, and then it's like, oh, well, one of them's going to be trapped. Well, and it gets back to your point that you were talking about with your background as an architect of or with that training in school of putting together these these dungeons and having a story for, well, why would this door be trapped and not the 19 other doors? Yeah. You know, and if you have that in mind and can kind of tell a story as players are navigating through, then I think that helps them realize, like, oh, well, maybe there's something important behind this door as opposed to the rest of the dungeon we've been in. You know, I think some of the, I just remember in, like second edition, some of the dungeons, it just seemed completely haphazard of you walk into a room and it's like, oh, there are these new creatures here that seem to have no relation to what I was just doing in the other room. Yeah. Um, and so that's one way I, I think to help as well. That's yeah, something I always think of when looking at any published dungeon is if there's a trap door or a trap something is how does everything else in the dungeon not set this trap off all the time? Right. There, there have been many dungeons and adventures where they address it, especially ones with like kobolds. It's like the kobolds are very good at avoiding these traps yeah. or, you know, no one's gone through here in a long time. But I've also seen times where it's like, there's creatures on both sides of this door and it's trapped also. And it's like, shouldn't they all just be dead right. or the trap, the trap <laughs> would just be done. That'd be a funny so, way to create a dungeon. Like everything just has poison arrows in it, and they're dead. It's like, yeah, it's just the navigating sort through. Of, you have to solve the mystery of why everyone in the dungeon died. So, one of the things I wanted to, and well, before I move on, I just wanted to thank uh, again the individual for sending us a question. Let me get their name right again. It was Fantasy Ecology at Fantasy Ecology. Um, yeah. So, with the last few minutes, I just wanted to talk with you about. Um, something else we, we've chatted about online, and I've been pretty open about some of the things in my life going on related to, to mental health. Um, it is World Mental Health Day as we're recording, October 10th. And one of the things we were chatting about ahead of time was how mental health and gaming intersect. And I, I think there's a lot of ways that certainly that is the case. I know there's uh, some other psychologists and social workers and other staff like myself who are uh, very actively combining those uh, worlds where they're um, running groups for younger individuals to teach social skills and other coping strategies, which I think is pretty phenomenal. You know, I've been pretty open about my advocacy for mental health and talk openly when I, you know, I have a therapist that I see and it's the I'm a psychologist, so that's what I do for, for work, and it's it's useful for me to go see somebody for assistance. So I just wanted to, again, get your thoughts on that and see what you wanted to add to that conversation. Yeah, I think it's a incredibly important conversation for me. Um, I've gone through a lot of stuff in my life. Uh, I have a sister that passed away when I was 21, I think, and that's impacted me a lot since then. Um and really, I've grown over the last 10 years to really firmly believe that 
everyone should, if they're able, see a therapist. I think it is incredibly helpful um, for anyone. You don't have to technically be mentally ill. It's just, you know, everyone's going through stuff. And if you have the means and the time and access to a good therapist, I think it can, it just, you know, helps you get through your life. And that's, you know, something everybody needs. But for me, it's been a big deal because my wife has suffered from clinical depression for pretty much our entire relationship over the last 17 years. Um, and we've also been, she's one of my most active D&D players. But there have been long stretches of me running or us playing where, you know, some nights she just can't do it. And so generally I try to be 100% open of, you know, she's not feeling it tonight. And, you know, don't harass her or make fun of her for not playing or, you know, anything else that you might do just as sort of like a friendly thing. It's like she probably, you know, feels really guilty about not attending tonight. And I just want to make that as easy. It's like, you know, it's just a D&D session. You don't have to participate. And I know that she really wants to most of the time, but we also had times where she would just sit in the room and wouldn't necessarily be playing her character or anything. She'd just be there to sort of experience it. And often it would lead to she'd feel more comfortable with people interacting and then come over and sit down for a little bit. Um, But I've definitely tried to sort of leave it as a, you know, it's not, hey, you can't join this adventure halfway through. It's like whatever is helpful for you. I didn't want to penalize her or any of my players for that. Um, of like, you know, if you're just not feeling it tonight, then we'll do something else. We can always play board games. And I've definitely had nights where, you know, I was stressing about planning and everybody shows up and it's like, hey, I have nothing. And I don't want to go through the, you know, it'd probably drain me horribly to improvise a whole adventure on the fly so either we can do it casually or just play some board games it sounds like the just the empathy being aware that I mean, especially with your wife but really every player at the table they're bringing a lot with them and there we all have a lot of life events and for lack of a better word suffering that i think we all deal with and to be willing to acknowledge that and be supportive of, yeah. of each other is really important. And what's worked the best for you, both as, you know, somebody who's running games and, you know, somebody who's, you know, knows that you have a player that uh, sometimes is not feeling, um, I don't even want to say that 100% because I feel like that's stigmatizing, but just, you know, feeling some symptoms that are kind of interfering with their ability to enjoy the, the experience. That's tough. I think the the biggest thing for me is just because I'm so close to my wife, understanding that, you know, if she's feeling particularly depressed, likely having to opt out of things just makes it worse. It's not a I'm depressed, so I'm not doing it and I don't want to be doing it. It's like I really probably want to be doing it, but I can't. And that just makes it worse. So trying to not, you know, trying to cut that off at the bottom of not making it a big deal um, and, you know, I think there probably were a few sessions where I actually just put it off just so that it wasn't something, you know, hey, you know, I might have I've always taken the initiative of scheduling all of our friends and especially back for some of our four games, we had up to like nine players sometimes. And I, I would 
be confident that at least one or two times, you know, I went through all this effort of getting everybody's schedules lined up and having it scheduled. And then maybe like the night before, you know, her or I or both of us were just not feeling it. And I'd be like, hey, I'm sorry. I know we're all supposed to do this tomorrow, but we can't. Mm-hmm. And it's just, you know, let's try it again. Um, and that's something that's probably changed with me over the last 15 years of a long time ago. It might have been, well, let's. You know, it's really important. Let's get together and do that. And more recently, you know, in the end, it's just a game. And if we need to do something else, we can do something else. And hopefully we can get together again soon. But I think another big issue or topic is sort of how the play at the table can happen. And, you know, players can get put off by anything at certain times. Um, and we actually just had a session a couple months ago where one player just got really frustrated and he's generally a very involved, active player and he was having a bad day or a bad week and the combination of players and plot, it just, it, we really sat at the table for like an hour trying to get something done and it just didn't work and he got frustrated and left. And I think, I don't know if he regretted it in the end, but it just, you know, was an unfortunate situation and it would have, Probably there were probably more things that I could do or the DM could have done to bring that around. But in the end, it's, you know, if he stormed out of the session, which is kind of what happened, not holding that against him. It's, hey, we understand it happens. You know, let's move past it. Whereas I could see some people being like, hey, he stormed out of a session. Screw him. That sucks. And it's like, you know, he didn't ruin that session necessarily it's just it happened and it's unfortunate let's move on and try to make the best of it and it it depends on how well you know everybody and obviously somebody like your wife who here is your significant other and you kind of know in many different ways that you have more insight into that situation than maybe a player who is a friend but you don't see all that often versus someone who's relatively new to a group Uh, But I think that level of understanding can be important. And, you know, certainly I'm not advocating that the DM or any player should try to be a counselor while the game is going on. But I do think it's it's useful in any kind of situation where you're communicating is to just sort of be aware of how things are going. Like, you know, what, what are, what's your mood? Are, Are you irritated about something? If you go into a session and you're frustrated because something's going sideways at work or you're late because of traffic and you're just feeling irritated, then that's likely going to bleed over into the game. And same thing if you're running a game, if you're feeling run down, tired, overworked, you're, you're likely going to have a little bit more irritability as you're trying to get your players to do the things that you want them to do. <laughs> um, yeah. So I think just being aware of what you're bringing into the game and then just having some, you know, again, some empathy that, Everyone else has their own story, not so much their character's backstory, but there's deaths in the family. There's other stuff that goes on. There's financial stress. There's just a crunch on time, I think, on everybody. And to set aside two to four or more hours to play a game, it's a big commitment for people. And, you know, if that experience isn't exactly what they were hoping for, or it starts maybe going in a way that's problematic, then it, it can just compound all the other frustrations and negative energy that might, that might be going on in in our life. So 
I think just being aware of that, and if a session does seem like it's maybe not going the way you'd like, or if someone seems totally checked out, being okay to, to check in with that person, or just taking a take a bathroom break, or say, hey, let's uh, all get some food break or whatever, and maybe kind of hit a reset button in some ways. Yeah, you've actually reminded me. I think it was um, Rob Donahue who tweets a lot of really good, yeah, sort of meaty RPG stuff. One time he was posting a bunch of tweets and it was essentially a suggestion of you should probably take a break for five to 10 minutes out of every hour during an RPG session. And at first I had a negative gut reaction to that of, you know, we're only getting together for four hours, taking a quarter of that as breaks. But I think it really is a good idea. And maybe it's just, you strive for that. But if you're really in a groove, you put it off. But I think a lot of my sessions could be and i'm going to try to do this in the future helped by doing that saying like all right let's take a five minute break let's take a 10 minute break here just at natural points in the plot of let's cut here for a minute um one big thing i've tried to do for the last couple years is if i as a dm need to think i'll say hold on let's pause and i think or if i get into a really you know tense or important interaction with a player I used to sort of thrive on that, like, let's get in the moment and back and forth. And sometimes it works, but I also don't feel I don't like feeling like I'm steamrolling a person like I sometimes I can sort of talk fast and try to fast talk through things. And I've, I noticed at one point that I was more fast talking the GM and less fast talking the NPC. So I've tried to pull that back and, you know, it's not fun. I don't want to be pulling one over on my friends very often. Pulling one over on their characters, fine. Um, so always being willing to step back, take a break, let's think about it, or being at the same time very willing of if you misspoke, we can change it. You know, oh, I didn't want to say that or, oh, let me rephrase that or, you know, because there's always those times you say something and the NPC's like, What? how dare you say that? And it's like, hold on, I didn't. And, you know, sometimes it can feel like you're cheating or, you know, unrealistic or whatever. But I also think, you know, it's stressful to force someone to be in that moment 100% of the time. So maybe stick with what they said, but give them a break to think about what they're going to do next. Um, and another sort of related note is what's been helpful for us lately is uh, a lot of our group is parents um, of children under six like I am and you know every once in a while one of my players shows up and he's like hey I've barely gotten any sleep I'm here I want to play but I'm going to be you know mostly checked out and I think we've had a session where he kind of just sat there for most of the session and interacted a little bit but he told us beforehand and you know he didn't have to tell us beforehand but it was super helpful just to know hey don't bother him much Yeah, he'll He'll give what he wants. He'll take what he wants. He's he's here. He just wants to hang out. That's fine. And it, it relates to something that I've tweeted out in various ways over the years. Uh, but the general theme is uh, the world would be a lot better place if everyone just assumed everybody they pass by is suffering in, so, in some way. And I think just <clears throat> our brains are kind of wired to suffer. And... It's not like a negative thing to say. I think it's, but it's just like the human experiences. There's, yeah, there's a lot going on. Symptoms of depression, anxiety, post-traumatic stress, you know, other issues are not really uncommon. You know, when you combine up all these symptoms and the number of people that experience them, 
it's a lot of people at some point in their life. And that that's okay. And it's okay to get treatment for that. It's okay to talk about it. I've been pretty open on Twitter and in previous podcasts that my, my brother ended his life by suicide last year. And I, I spoke with him about suicide openly before he died and, you know, had some concerns about what, what he was doing. And I think if more people felt open and comfortable to talk about these symptoms and talk about mental health issues and get help, whether it's from a friend or a family member or a physician or a therapist or a pastor or, or somebody they trust, instead of feeling guilt or shame and on top of all the other suffering they have. And like, like you said, I think it'd be great if it was just commonplace where, you know, you have your doctor you see for your physical issues and, you know, you have a therapist that, that you see as well. And mind and body are very much connected anyway. So I just think it would be beneficial. And I appreciate your willingness to be open to this conversation on here and, my hope is by continuing to talk about these things on online, on Twitter and in my articles and through the, you know, some of the podcasts that it just promotes more awareness. And, you know, maybe somebody hears this and is like, well, you know what, I'm, I'm going to ask my physician about, about it, or, you know, I'm going to check in with my friend who seems like, you know, they showed up the last few games, but they seem pretty withdrawn. Let me just ask a question of like, Hey, how are you doing? What, what's going on? But that's okay, and I, I hope that this promotes that. Yeah, me too. On that note, what um, <laughs> it's I'm trying to, to bring us back from there. What um, how can people find you online if they have questions or you know want to follow up with you based on some of the things we've been talking about today? Um, like we've talked about a lot, I have a lot of older posts um, on critical-hits.com, and I think my contact information is still on there somewhere. Um, but you can find me on Twitter as Bartonius. And how do you spell that for the folks who are not already familiar with you? B-A-R-T-O-N-E-U-S. Fantastic. Uh, what are you planning on additional articles at the moment for Critical Hits? Anything in the in the works? Nothing in the works right now, but I have a bunch of blog posts in my head that I actually need to get out. Um, one of them is – one or two of them are direct – responses to Mike Shea's antagonizing of me. Um, not about theater of the mind, but mostly mostly about world building. Um, I joked about I joked with him today about theater of the forge. Yeah, which I, I like that. <laughs> um, I should have you both on the show at the same time so you can just you know go at it. Oh, we would never stop. And <laughs> it, it's Mike and I get along great actually, yeah. but um, I think he's really hit a good middle point now where he talks about, you know, use theater mind here, use Dwarven Forge or, you know, cool terrain there and the sort of abstract middle that he's been talking about recently. I think that's really the sweet spot of the idea of, you know, there's a place for tactical gridded combat and there's a place for really cool terrain and there's, you know, a lot of things that theater of the mind does well also and having those in your sort of DM grab bag is a great thing and I actually have several times mixed and matched them where I'll set up a battle mat and lay things out, but then the sort of upkeep of moving everything around becomes too much, so I'll just describe what's happening and then maybe push some minis around like in a loose fashion. Mm -hmm. Sure. Um, 
but I've generally leaned towards using a map and minis just because I've had several players over the course of my time running games where it's hard for them to envision things a lot. Um, and so, you know, I could just, I could do a really good job describing this whole environment and they can't, you know, it's hard for them to keep that in their head and keep it the same. And it's led to issues where, you know, they would have done something completely different if they'd understood what everyone else was imagining. So I try to just draw it out and make it clear what I can with a little drawing or a battle map or something to keep that. Yeah. And it, sort of and it depends on some of the players at the table because some some you know need that visual or where are all the where are all the parts in this combat and it depends on the class. Like we, I, in the one game I play in Tomb of Annihilation, where I'm a bard, so I don't it doesn't really matter too much to me where everyone is. Um, yeah. In terms of just you know I'm sometimes buffing people, but we have a rogue who like really relies on cover and stealth and. Like needs to know. Okay, are there two people next to this thing so I can get advantage? And the visual visualization of that is very important to that character's abilities. Almost like the ranger in the desert. Like if you take that ranger out of the desert, then it's not as effective. So sometimes theater of the mind makes that character a little less effective potentially, or it's just more work for the DM to explain it. But yeah, all these topics are fascinating for me to discuss, and I. Really appreciate all the time that uh, you've shared with me here on on the podcast. So, and, and thank you again for just over the years supporting my writing and my efforts, uh, kind of welcoming me into the greater you know role playing game community that is on uh, social media and stuff. I, I am very appreciative of of that over the years. Well, you're quite welcome. You've been doing a fantastic job, so I'm happy to be a fan and. Yeah, I'm hoping I can write some more blog posts and do some more good content out there for different world-building ideas. But and, and good luck on the Hearthstone ladder. I know you, uh, oh, yeah. you've been uh, reaching higher heights each and each month, so that's exciting. Congratulations on that. Thank you. Yeah, I hit rank 10 before the 10th of the month, which I think normally I wouldn't be getting there till the last week. So I'm going to try to push up to 5 this month. Sweet. But. We'll see. Good luck with that. Well, thanks everyone for listening. And uh, I think we'll be back with another episode here before the end of the month. So uh, until next time, Danny, thank you again. Thank you. Thank you.